Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House, who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And we're thrilled to bring you the last of our series of Women Making History, an interview with Marnie Levine, who is our friend from the White House and also Vice President of Global Partnerships, Business and Corporate Development at Facebook currently. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk about the mass shooting in Colorado. We have been watching along with everyone else heartbreakingly as the story has been unfolding and the lives that have been lost. And we were just talking before we started recording about how devastating it is that as a country, as we return to a sense of normalcy. We've been seeing this uptick also in shootings and the prevalence of shootings, especially over the last few weeks. And unfortunately, so many people look at this from a statistical perspective, but you know, these are mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and friends who are losing their lives. And we have to really take a look and a hard look as a country when we can allow somebody to purchase a gun the same day that they apply for it. It's It's kind of unfathomable that something like this could happen, but it's also such a part of our reality. I think that's it, Darian. Like, as a mom, you're so scared about your kids going out every day. And, you know, I think we have had a year of kind of a shutdown. And I think we have to figure out what that new normal is. And so I loved that we are calling out some of the hypocrisy right now of, you know, I saw Reverend Warnock point out that you can register and use a gun in the same day at the same time that there are people trying to take that right away for voting. You can't register and vote in the same day. So we've got to establish our values and what we want as a country going forward. And so I'm certainly relieved to see that there are a lot of people standing up, but we've got to give them continued oxygen and be there for people who are trying to reform our system so that we don't have to be as worried every day that our children go out in the streets. And that's a great point, Johanna, because I know that at a time like this, it becomes very politicized where people say, well, now's not the time to talk about gun reform. But a lot of the families themselves, the victims' families themselves are talking about, no, enough is enough. And you're seeing um, this, this woman who lost her father tweeting about how he just walked her down the aisle last summer and how heartbroken she is. And as these personal stories are coming out and we're honoring the lives of the victims, we can also at the same time have the conversation about common sense gun reform. Yeah, we have to be able to. And I saw that tweet that went viral and she mentions that she's also going to become a mother and she's going to become a mother without a father in the picture for no reason. So we've got to do better. That's right. And I know we continue to say how sorry we are and how our thoughts and prayers are with people. But this is senseless violence. This didn't have to happen. And until we're able to address that and take a hard look at ourselves and what values we are standing by in this country and what lobbies we're allowing to drive policy, then we're going to continue to have these I'm sorry's and we're going to continue to have to send thoughts and prayers and not actually be able to take action. So my hope for these families and these victims is that we take a hard look at ourselves as a country and that we finally take the steps that we need, be it from President Biden on down through Congress to local electeds, that we 
do what we have to do to protect our families and to protect our communities. What's so tragic to see is the White House has just lowered the flag to honor those who were killed in Boulder after having just raised it last night following the Atlanta killings. And at some point, do you just keep it lowered? Is this just going to continue to happen? Are we not going to stop this endless cycle of violence against our own communities and against our neighbors and our families and friends? How we keep saying, you know, we don't know how to stop this when this is completely preventable. Absolutely, because we are in a pandemic and some of the only places that are really fully open right now are our grocery stores. Now even But it is. I had gone to the grocery store yesterday. And so when I got home and saw all of it breaking, I was like, oh, for God's sake, you know, like you run an errand. And yes, you could get in a car accident. But like this is so stupid like we we've done everything we can and we continue to move it forward to make cars safer and now here we are we can't make it so that someone doesn't shoot up our grocery stores we have to do better someone who is committed to doing better in whatever space she's in and she's been in some pretty incredible spaces is our next interview marnie levine We'll let you hear it from her, but this woman has been at the highest levels of the White House and in tech and has been a tireless champion for women. So she's the perfect person to close out this Women's History Month with. Let's jump right in. Marnie Levine is the Vice President of Global Partnerships, Business, and Corporate Development at Facebook. She previously served as COO of Instagram and as Chief of Staff of the National Economic Council and the Obama White House and Special Assistant to the President for Economic Policy. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here and to see friendly faces. We were very excited about this interview in particular because we know you well from our years in the White House together, but we actually wanted to start our conversation way back before that because we want to know more about your background and where you come from, the unique perspective that you have brought from your upbringing to all these incredible roles and spaces that you move in. Well, okay. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, which I'm mentioning here because I know that anybody who's in politics always appreciates hearing the great state of Ohio mentioned. Of course. Um, I think it's important to to understand a couple things. One is that um, I went to an all-girl school growing up. And um, that really was, you know, a formative part of my experience as anyone's high school experience is, but going to an all-girl school really helped mold and shape who I am today, I think. And, um, And the other is that from a very, very young age, I was interested in, or my parents would say obsessed with, um, politics, policy, government. It is what interested me. And when I was in my senior year of high school, I did a senior project with the county commissioner, which is sort of like a mayor <laughs> in Cleveland. And that was a woman. You know, she was the first woman in that role, um, county commissioner Mary Boyle, and her chief of staff was a woman, um, this woman, Tracy Starr. And both were really great mentors to me and introduced me to the world of government and what policy could do in terms of affecting positive change in people's lives and um, what getting people access to social services and government services could mean in one's life um, to make them better. So that was from the very early days. And then what I knew was that when I went to college that I wanted to go to Washington, D.C., 
somehow, some way. I remember seeing that city for the first time and just thinking, I belong here. <laughs> this is where I want to be. This is where um, I want to work. And um, and so a lot of my early years were focused on getting myself to Washington, D.C. So I started out in the Clinton administration. I worked at the Treasury Department um, in the 90s. Yes, I'm old. And um, not at all. No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and I um, and those were just really important years for me, not only because and, and I should say that when I was asked to interview at the Treasury Department, I really did not know what the Treasury Department did. <laughs> this was before the Internet. If you can imagine that this is before cell phones, if you can imagine that. And so I needed to go back to my um, college textbook to look at what the Treasury Department did. And I was offered a job there. I was lucky enough to be offered a job there. And that's where I met some of the most important people in my career. Uh, Larry Summers, who's been a longtime mentor. He was Treasury Secretary. Um, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, who worked with Larry Summers then. And, um, and we worked together and now work together at Facebook and so many other people who um, I remain close with. And Treasury really opened, again, my eyes to what government could do in people's lives and what policy could do in people's lives. And um, and it got me very interested in financial services, um, getting people access to mainstream financial services. And, um, and so a lot of the things I've done from there have followed um, from some of the work that we did in those early days. Yeah. And so we first met when we were all a part of the Obama White House. And you talk a little bit about your trepidation going into that role because you weren't in the Clinton administration. You might not have had that family already, but you're going into the Obama administration knowing the time commitment, knowing what it was going to be like with regard to you wanting to be a present parent and also be really committed to your job. So can you tell us a little bit about that? how you felt and also how you, and I sometimes dread saying this, but how you balanced it all. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing that you or anybody else would know about me when you work with me is I'm definitely not balanced. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, here's the thing is that work is work in my career is such an important part of my identity. It has been from the earliest days. And I think it started from that first senior project when I worked for county commissioner, because they really gave me so much confidence and, um, and it allowed me to, to understand that, you know, that it was a part of my identity. And I knew then that I always wanted to work. So when I was offered the opportunity to go work at the white house, um, I, you know, was concerned about it, but I had a conversation with my husband and he said, I know you want to do this. We'll make it work. We'll figure out how to make it work. And I knew, and I knew we would, but I definitely had concerns, um, about how I was going to make it work. Cause I remembered that when I worked at the treasury department, I pretty much worked seven days of work mm -hmm. week, many hours a day. Again, the technology wasn't there because we weren't using, um, we didn't really have the internet. We didn't have even email in the way that we did today. We certainly didn't have messaging. We didn't have a lot of the tools that make work more flexible. And there are many things that I remember about my time in the White House and about how important 
those tools became over the time that I was there. There was this one moment where um, I had been working so much that, um, and I had to work on a document early in the morning before one of the Sunday shows, and it wasn't connecting or printing at home because of the firewalls. And so I drove into the office at a really early hour. And then I went and picked up Larry Summers. We went and we did the Sunday show and we were sitting in the car afterwards. And I said, Larry, we have to do something about these laptops because (laughs) they are not, they are really old and they're not working with the firewalls. And if we don't help people work more flexibly, people are going to get divorced. Like half your staff is going to get divorced and that is going to be a very bad thing. And he went in to go see Rom and he actually helped get newer, better computers, which was um, helpful to me as a mother, because then I could go home and I could work. But, you know, I really struggled with it because I also remembered that being in my twenties at the treasury department, I could throw my whole self into work. And I did have this tug of wanting to do a good job at work, play some small role in terms of being able to turn the economy around and stabilize the financial system, all the big things that we all were working on together. And, but I had a three-year-old at the time and I had a newborn, a three-month-old at the time, and I needed to make some different decisions. But there's this one memory that really stands out in my mind, which is that um, you all know Brian Deese, who now- Right. He run, now runs the National Economic Council. And back then under the Obama White House, you know, our desks were right next to each other. And um, there was this one night and it was around 730 and he was walking upstairs after a long day of meetings and he was carrying his chicken tenders on a tray and he put them down on his desk and he took off his suit jacket and he put it on the back of his chair and he, um, you know, sat, rolled up his sleeves and he started to type out this memo that he was going to write that was going to be thoughtful and important and make a real contribution because he's a superstar, really fantastic colleague. And I looked at him and I thought, I feel envious of him that he is in this position where he can give it his all and he can do that. And I'm so glad that he can. But as for me, I am hurrying because I need to leave here because I will not see my three-year-old unless I get home very soon and um, and spend that time with him before he he goes to bed. So I can't put in the time and the effort in the way that I would like to. But that was okay because that was a choice I was making at that moment, at that time, and it was right for me. You know, a lot of our former colleagues have gone from working in the White House into tech and how was that experience working at the NEC, working in the White House? How has that prepared you? Is there is there a crossover? Well, I think there's things that I definitely learned in the government that I brought to Silicon Valley and into the tech world. Um, for one thing, I would say that um, I brought my love of paper from Washington, <laughs> D.C. To, te- to the tech world, as strange as that might sound. Um, I also sometimes brought some of my language, which was corrected early on. Um, you know, I would say things like, I'm going to write a memo and somebody said, well, why don't you put together your plan? You know, there were some things like that, but I think the thing that I learned from Washington that I brought was how to see around corners and identify risk. We did a lot of that while we were in the government in in terms of anticipating reactions from other people. And I think the other thing that I learned, um, was in the tech world or at Facebook, what we call it is working cross-functionally. 
But when I was in the government and I worked at the National Economic Council, our job was to coordinate economic policy. So that meant we were working with all the different agencies to collect views and recommendations um, to form a policy. And, um, and that was the interagency process. And I also, we work with all different functions across the company in order to make recommendations um, within, you know, at Facebook. So there's a lot in terms of process that ends up uh, being similar. So those are some of the lessons that I brought because in every job that I've been in at Facebook, whether it was running policy or whether it was being COO of Instagram or whether it's even running global partnerships, that is my job is to kind of work across the company to collect the best thoughts and put together recommendations about how to approach a business problem or how to approach an operational problem or how to form a policy. Marnie, I was feeling you so much when you were talking about your three-year-old because I had my son in the White House and I left when he was three. It's an impossible task because you feel like, you know, you have a little person saying, mommy, I miss you. And you have a job that needs you 100% of the time. Are you finding it better in the tech industry? And I know the kids are older now, but what's it been like, you know, in the tech industry? Do you think that it's a more supportive community for parenting or, or what would you say the difference is? Well, I think we use a variety of tools that allow us to work more flexibly. But I remember this story in particular where um, my oldest son, who, um, you know, he was, I guess he was three and a half. He was three to five when I was uh, working in the White House. But he, um, when we moved to California, we went back to the East Coast, uh, was doing an event um, in Boston at Harvard. And um, I brought my son on a work trip with me. And uh, I really like to do that because I think it's important. I take one at a time and I think it's important for them to see me, you know, at work. And fortunately through my job, I get to do some fun events. And so it's fun for them too, like going to the NBA All-Star Game or something like that. But in this particular case, we went to... Boston and I was doing this event. And um, afterwards, one of the Crimson uh, reporters asked to speak to, with me. And so we sat down to have a conversation and my son was sitting next to me after we I had just done this big fireside chat. And the reporter said, do you mind if I ask your son a question? And I said, sure, but it's off the record. And so she said to my son, what do you think of your mother's career? And what's cool about your mom's job? And, and she, and she also asked, uh, you know, what do you like about it? And he said, and I was nervous. He said, well, what I really like is that it's a great job, but she's home a lot more than she was when she worked at the white house. Oh Mm -hmm. my goodness. Right. So the reporter looked at me and said, would you like to have that on the record? And I was like, no, it's okay. It's still good <laughs> off the record. <laughs> but it was a great answer, right? It was a great yeah. answer. And, you know, he has kind of been my teacher in a strange way because he has guided me through my career about what it is that he needs and when he needs it. But what I learned is that you actually have to listen when they give you the feedback. So I wanted to just share one story which is when I first got to the White House and I had to, it was a Friday and I had to take my son to go to the doctors. And so we went to, we visited the doctors and then we were driving on our way home and 
my son said, where, where are we going now? And I said, I'm taking you home and then you're going to go to school. And he said, mom, did you know that Matthew's mother always takes him to school every day? And I said, well, I take you to school often, um, but I can't do it every morning because I have an early morning meeting. Now, you know that there's that there was that 8.30 meeting in the White House, right? Mm -hmm. That happened every meeting. And it wasn't that big. And there are all these sort of coveted slots to go to that meeting. And I wanted to go to the meeting so that I could do my job well. And, but in this particular case, at this time, my son had this conversation with me. And then on Monday morning, he marches into the bathroom when I'm getting dressed. And he said to me, so are you going to take me to school this morning? And I said, well, I can't because I have a meeting, but I'll do it another time. And he said, do you remember the conference that we had recently where I told you that Matthew's mother takes him to school every morning? And I said, yes, I do. And he kind of marches out of the room. My husband looks at me and says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is take him to school because I think what he's telling me is the thing he wants me to do is take him to school in the morning. So I went into work later and I used to get to the White House at 9.15, which as you know, is basically the middle of the day because right. people have been there since the early, early hours of the morning. And so that's pretty late. But you know what I learned? He needed me then in order to be able to start his day confidently. I was going to do a perfectly fine job at work Maybe I wasn't going to do everything that I wanted to do. And maybe I could have done things a little bit better as a result of, you know, having been plugged into different things, but I was going to do it pretty well. And the world was still going to turn. And that's what he needed then. And at that moment, and that's how it showed up. He just wanted to start the day with me in the morning. Other kids need other things. They need their parents home after school, or they need, he didn't need any of that. He was perfectly fine as long as we started out our mornings together. And so I was glad that he taught me that lesson. And I was glad I heard it. And that you honored his feelings. And when you're little, it's really easy to have that emotion all bottled up and that he was able to communicate that with you and that you listened to him and you responded to him in a way that made him feel validated. Just as a mom who has, I mean, my girls are five and six now, you know, I'm still learning that. And I follow of, them very closely <laughs> on Instagram. They're beautiful. Well, I was just thinking, I so I have this Instagram account for them and at some point they will want to take that over and be more in control. And I definitely show them the pictures before I ever post them. But as a mom who's now raising older boys, when it comes to social media, how are you creating that kind of balance and regulating what, how much access they have to social media? Well, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, I, have two, I have two boys, one's 15 and one is 12. My 15-year-old is on social media, but my 12-year-old is not on social media because, well, for our services, the policy is 13. And so they're not, so he's not on it. So I'm not worrying about it at this moment, but we have lots and lots of conversations about it, even when he's looking at mine. But what I understand is that they want to be able to connect with their friends. They want to be able to follow the people who inspire them. They want to stay current on you know, their passions, their interests, and be involved in different types of communities. So there are real benefits to being able to do it. But at the same time, we have conversations about rules and we have conversations about 
safety um, and making sure that they understand the tools and the to use if they ever encounter certain types of situations online. We have lots of conversations about only accepting friend requests from you know people who you know, and um, it, for them because they're not acting as public figures. You know, I want them to be interacting really with their friends and their family and the people who they who they know. And we have lots of conversations about you know pausing and thinking about what it is that you're that he may be posting on social media. And in the same way that when he was first going to school, I taught him how to cross the street safely. In the same way that I told him the kind of behavior I expected of him in school, you know, in the same way that I told him, you know, not to talk to strangers in certain situations, we've had lots and lots of conversations about what it means to use social media responsibly how we, you know, time is our precious resource and how you have to carve up time and make differences, make different trade-offs about how you're going to use your time and how, how to fit it in with their other priorities like school, homework, athletics, debate. I have debaters in my household, which is a good and bad thing. Um, And, um, and so we talk about it, we talk about it a lot. And sometimes I share stories with them about, um, you know, lessons learned. And sometimes I share really interesting, great stories where that they can use as role models and case studies of, of, of people where they're doing really great things online, like using fundraising tools to create social impact and be involved in their communities. often about the changes that we've experienced in just our lifetime. And, you know, we're Midwestern girls. Like, I remember the Galesburg, Illinois, the dial-up internet. And I think about us raising kids now and, like, trying to figure out what is the world going to look like for them? What should they be thinking about for their jobs and their opportunities? And I'm curious, as you raise these two young boys and see kind of what the future of technology is, if you have any thoughts there on what we should be preparing our kids for. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about how the conversations go in our household is that our kids ask my husband and me, lots of questions about our jobs and what they're about. And I can see that they're trying to understand the jobs that we have and what they mean. And, um, you know, one of the funnier moments that I've had was my kids had spent, we, we had to have a conversation with them when I was running global policy, because I ran that for Facebook from Washington, DC. And then we explained to them that we would be moving to the Bay area because of my job as COO of Instagram. Now, in the life of a kid, that's a big deal. Moving Mm -hmm. is, you know, moving is a change. And so they really wanted to understand if this was going to be worthwhile. So I sat down with them and I explained to them what Instagram was about at that time. And it was, you know, still pretty early days of what Instagram was. But I explained that people were using Instagram to connect with their friends and their family and to... um, and to show and tell what it was that they were doing visually and that that was really powerful 
in terms of how different people were doing that. And that it was also creating these communities around passions and interests. And as a result of some of the tools that we were thinking about potentially having on Instagram, that people could, you know, display their crafts, the things they were making, and they could actually sell them from Instagram. And that was like, a complete change of the way things were done because before you either had to have a website or before you had to sell it in a brick and mortar store. And that Instagram was creating kind of an instant website, if you will, for people to connect with people in their community, but also people to connect with new customers around the world and sell the things that they that they had. So I think that they started to understand that. And then there was this really great moment where about two years ago, I was changing jobs uh, to the one that I'm in now today, which is running global partnerships, um, business and corporate development. And my youngest son said to me, mom, you're COO of Instagram. That's so cool. What could this new job possibly be about that you would want to change to it? (laughs) And, um, And I understood what he was saying, but, and it was, on me to explain to him, you know, what this job was about. And, um, and you might, as we sit here right now, be wondering what do you do in that job uh, too. But, you know, I said to him, we have a portal, which is the, um, which is a video calling device in our kitchen. And I said to him, you know, when you walk into the, into the kitchen and you say, Hey, portal play Drake or Meek Mill, you know, that's because, we have a partnership with Spotify. <laughs> Your portal wants to play Drake. My portal just went off. <laughs> That's awesome. That is perfect. That is awesome. And so these partnerships that you're creating, you're able to explain that to them. Do they understand yeah. it? Yes. Yeah, so then he understood it. And I said, when you come in and you say, um, hey, Portal, play me the, you know, the headlines um, in the news, that's because of a partnership with CNN. And when you say, hey, Portal, or hey Alexa, you know what hey Alexa is? Well, that's because of a partnership with Amazon. See, there it is again. In I the was going to say they're all talking to us. And that's the problem <laughs> right, with the with, the, with back doing zooms. Yeah, they all start talking in different locations. Right. But then uh, he looked at me and he said, "I get it. Sounds like an interesting job. Good luck with that." And he walked out of the room. And so I can see them trying to process the different types of jobs that people have. And one of the things that we talked, that we've talked a lot about, because it, you know, sometimes they ask me like, well, what gets you up in the morning, mom? And, you know, what makes you excited to go into work? And one of those things really is how women in particular have used the tools that we have on our platforms, on Facebook, on Instagram to uh, grow their businesses, their existing businesses, or to have taken something that was a mere passion or interest and to turn that into a business. It was never premeditated that this was going to become the way they were going to make their livelihood. But I think that's so incredibly empowering. And I've just heard so many stories around the US and around the world where it's fundamentally changed people's lives and women's lives. And I think that's so empowering and really creates financial independence for women in a way that didn't exist before. So our conversations are largely about 
um, the changing nature of roles and responsibilities that what you see, you have to kind of probe to understand what's behind jobs and that jobs are changing, but they're also become, they're, they also could be things that you thought might not be interesting, might be um, interesting in the way they're evolving and changing and that it's up to you to sort of do the research, the homework and understand. And in a lot of these cases, you know, you can be entrepreneurial based on the kinds of tools and platforms that are becoming available that didn't exist before. That's right. And Marnie, you talk so much about supporting women. And that's one of the things I remember you supporting me when I was Rotus and always being kind and sharing your knowledge with me. But I want to stay on how you are doing this in a more philanthropic way. And one of the organizations that you sit on the board of directors for is Women for Women International. And so I was hoping that you tell our listeners a little bit about it and how they might learn more. Well, you can always go to the website for Women for Women International. I'm sure they'd be thrilled to have you visit. But what I love, I love, you know, the mission around Women for Women that it is just as the name suggests that it's women helping women, which is not, there's nothing more beautiful than that. In this particular case, um, the organization is focused on um, women in war-torn countries who are um, looking to help rehabilitate their communities. And we know that women are often the decision makers around, um, you know, financial decisions, health decisions, education decisions. And so what, um, what Women for Women does is helps to provide that full education to women so that they can help make the very best decisions to rebuild their communities. So um, I love the leadership of the organization. The board of the organization is a really great group of, of women. And I really enjoy my involvement with that organization. Um, I am also you know, very involved in um, Cheryl Sandberg's organization, Lean In, that um, has been, you know, quite meaningful in my life. And I know in so many other people's lives and what lean in really talks about is about creating circles and the value of circles. I don't know whether you're in a lean in circle for me, I wasn't in a dedicated lean in circle, but my book clubs really have become my lean in circles. Mm -hmm. They are the place where, you know, we do talk about that. We read the book and we talk about it. I know some book clubs don't, uh, we do, but then we also sprinkle in little bits about our lives, our careers, the things that we're, the decisions that we're trying to make. And what is so interesting about, um, lean in circles is that it's something like 85% of people who make a positive life change, ascribe it to their circle. And so being part of a network really is empowering, particularly for women. And um, so I personally have uh, always enjoyed, that's why I was saying when I went to an all-girls school, being part of networks of girls, young women, women, um, and trying to make sure that I'm always thinking about how to connect people either to help them find jobs or to support them in their current jobs or just to help support them in any way. I get a lot out of it. And, um, and I hope I'm able to give something to other people too. 
You certainly do. And it's interesting to hear you talk about these networks for women because you play a big part in creating them. I know that from following you on Instagram that you regularly host conversations with diverse women talking about their community impact. And hearing you actually talk about Instagram as being this empowerment space, on a side note, we were catching up before our interview about my cancer journey. And that was such an empowering tool, Instagram, with connecting with other women who are on similar journeys. So it really is a very beautiful space. And so to that point, I'd love to know what you see as your role in championing women as leaders with the platforms that you have. I try to do two things. Within the company itself, I've really tried to um, work with other women and create spaces, safe spaces where women can come together and connect and share and, um, and support each other. So when I was at Instagram, we had the women of Instagram and I would host them at my house at the time. Um, when I was in Washington, be the women of the DC office and they would come to my house and we would just talk and share. I've done that with the women of partnerships, you know, in the, in the Bay area, the, uh, the bad news is we can't do them anymore because we have too many women. The good news is we can't do them anymore because we have too many women. So we can't fit them all at the house. But those moments, it's the small moments where women get together and they connect and share and they might learn, they might meet somebody in the organization who they'd never met before and didn't know what kind of a job they had or what they did in their role, uh, which actually becomes the seed, the germ of something new in somebody's mind for a future role or responsibility that they could that they could play. And then they have somebody to go to, to say, tell me more about what that role is. Um, it's also the case that when we've gotten together and we've had, um, a speaker come in and, you know, we've, we've had different people in the group who've suggested, let's have somebody come in and talk to us about how to negotiate better. Everybody wants to negotiate better, or let's have somebody come in and talk about financial planning. People want to know how to make good financial decisions, but maybe they didn't have the forum or the space to be able to ask those kinds of um, questions. And so what we do at the company, I think, happens on our platforms, as you were saying, every day, all day in groups, with Facebook groups, on Instagram, when people find each other around common themes through hashtags or wh whatever it is that they're getting together and they're, ha they're sharing those experiences. And one of the best things has been traveling around the world and meeting people who have met through Facebook and Instagram and then meet in the offline world and, and just sort of coach and mentor each other because of that relationship that they first formed um, in those different communities online. seen both sides, the government world and the technology world, who do you think has the responsibility of regulating the industry when there is so much good, but there's also potential bad that could be used in, in different ways? Well, I ran, um, I ran global policy at Facebook for four years. And during that time, one of my roles and responsibilities was to work with policymakers around the world to talk to them about what the mission of our service and new products that we were launching, how they worked, how we thought about them, how we designed them, and um, and to answer any of their questions that they had about these new technologies. 
that was a really key part of my job. And I think that they were right to be asking questions and we needed to be able to come in and answer their questions and make them more familiar with what was changing so quickly. So when they were having hearings and bringing people in to explain this, that's an important role of government. And I also think that it was important to be able to have private discussions about how these technologies were evolving. So I think it's a um, a collaborative process to figure out what are the right rules and regulations that ought to exist so that you know technologies can continue to grow and develop and for there to be innovation, but at the same time, for there to be a common set of standards that apply to all technologies and create safe spaces for people to use them. And I mean, in protecting interests, there's so much about tech and the platforms that you work on that are inclusive and give an opportunity for people who didn't have outlets before an opportunity to express themselves and to share with the world. And one of the things that I I didn't know about you when we first started working at the White House was that throughout your life, you had a hearing disability and you struggled with that. And you didn't take on even hearing aids until 2015. So I just want to ask you, as someone who has a platform that is able to talk and speak to people who are currently struggling to come to terms with their disability or something that might make them different, what would you have said to yourself, you know, when you were doubting and you weren't sure how you should move forward? And what would you tell them as people who are differently abled? Well, I was, when I was four years old, I had fluid in my ears and I had an operation to put tubes in and it drained the, um, it drained the fluid, but it left, left some scarring tissue in my ears. And so that's why I had um, a partial hearing loss. I didn't actually know that I had a disability growing up, or I didn't actually acknowledge that I had a disability, but I spent most of my life managing it. And I think that that was actually pretty exhausting. So just a few examples in school, I always made sure I was in the front row in the center in front of the teacher at slumber parties where, you know, the lights would go off. I would strategically place myself next to the birthday girl. So, because I knew every, all the action was going to be directed towards, towards her. So I wanted to be able to hear, be in the line of, you know, the whispering, cause I couldn't hear it if I could, if I couldn't read lips too. And in meetings at work, I would strategically place myself so that I could see the person who was going to do the majority of the talking. And, you know, frequently I would be turning to different people and say, what did that person say? Or what was so funny? I would miss it. So just having to be so attentive is just exhausting after a while. So I finally just kind of, I'd been doing a little bit of research and homework and I kind of decided, you know, I'm going to go to the um, ear, nose and throat doctor, and I'm going to ask them about hearing aids. And they showed me these hearing aids and they were these tiny little things and they put them in. And as soon as they put them in, it was like the clouds parted and the sun came in and suddenly (laughs) I could hear things in a whole new way. And it was pretty incredible, like instantly. And I really did kind of marvel at the new technology. And 
one of the first things I did was I called my parents and I said, I finally got these hearing aids. Like, why didn't you ever encourage me to get these hearing aids? I've been so exhausted. And they said, well, you probably wouldn't have wanted to get them before because they were, you know, they were big and clunky and you had to wear these things around your neck. And, you know, maybe I would have been made fun of. Maybe I kind of knew that. Maybe I wanted to hide it. I don't know what those things are, but I've, I've thought about them, you know, a lot. I then walked into my office and I said to one of my colleagues, you'll never believe what I, what I got. And he said, what? And I said, I got these hearing aids and it's amazing. I can hear everything. And he looked at me very affectionately. He said, good. Cause you can't hear a darn thing. <laughs> and, you know, and he was just so happy and supportive that I had finally gotten help. And so then I started talking about it with other people. And what was interesting is that other people then started coming to me and talking to me about it. And there's this one woman in particular who I work with and she came to me and she said, I heard your story and I've been trying to work up the courage to talk to you about this, but, and she is upset. She's crying. So now I'm crying and we're crying together. And she said, but I, I am losing my, I'm losing some hearing and I feel like I need to get hearing aids and you have really motivated me to go get, to go get hearing aids. But I think it's a weakness because it's like another strike against me because I'm a woman, I'm young and, um, and I I'm of Hispanic heritage. And so I feel like if I also get hearing aids, it's going to be another way that I'm inadequate at work. And I could just cry right now, like thinking back on this conversation. And I just told her, I'm going to give you the number for the place to call. This is not a weakness. This is a, this, you are doing something strong and you are going to be happy that you got this. And it is not weak to be a woman and it is not weak to be young. And it is awesome to have your Hispanic heritage. And I hope you bring that to the table. And so we ha we've had a lot of conversations about this, but that really stuck out in my mind. And so when I came into this role as head of partnerships, they asked me to be the uh, executive sponsor of the Differently Abled group. We have these employee resource groups at Facebook, Black at, you know, Latinx at. Uh, we have all different kinds of groups. And um, I've been really proud to lead this group. But when they asked me to do it, they didn't know that I identified as having a disability. And I do. And I've even learned things that, you know, we call it the Differently Abled group, but I've even learned that some people prefer um, to call it a disability. They don't want to they don't want to mask it. It is a disability, but there again, you learn these lessons in life, which are that although, you know, I might not be able to hear really well, as it turns out, it's made me a really good listener. And as it turns out, listening is a really important skill for managing and leading and really understand what people are trying to communicate to you. And I really need those. I need to read lips, I really need to read nonverbal cues in order to be able to organize and manage groups and conversations. And that's led to actually almost becoming kind of like a superpower, really listening. 
Along the lines of social media being such a, a connective opportunity for different groups of people, many people truly use social media as their primary source of expression and communication today. But we have also seen multiple public figures banned from various platforms for using inflammatory language. Is social media a right or is it a privilege? I think that internet access, connectivity is a fundamental human right. I think the UN has said that. So I think that that is a right because when you are connected to the internet, you're connected to other people, you are connected to information, and that is really important and is a true right. I think that access to social media is a privilege and you need to be able to use it responsibly. And our platform has always had policies. We've, we've, we have um, tried to optimize for speech and give all voices an opportunity because that's what these platforms are about. But we've never said that you can say anything. And we've always tried to um, create policies so that we can have safe and inclusive environments for people to express themselves. Well, you are our last interview of this uh, Women's History Month. So you get the last word of the month on behalf of women and all of our history. So no no small stakes here. <laughs> no pressure, Marty. No pressure. You speak There's for all no, women of all times. It's not Women's History Month. It's Women's, history, women's history and every day forevermore. Well, I guess I agree with you 100%, and that's why we've got Pod as a woman. But what's your biggest takeaway or lesson in overseeing the operations for Facebook during Women's History Month? Um, to me, the best part has been getting to meet women um, from all different walks of life who are doing all different kinds of things who have different perspectives, who have different missions, and who are having this incredible impact. I've been doing these uh, Instagram lives. Just yesterday, I interviewed Angela Manuel Davis, who started ARMY. And um, she is a coach, not a trainer. And the reason why she makes that distinction is because she really focuses on helping people understand what their mission, vision, goals are for themselves that may be beyond fitness and to get after it. And, and she was just super inspiring. I met with Saran Kaba Jones, who started, she's the CEO founder of Face Africa. And she has all different kinds of initiatives through, through this for Liberia and has focused on initiatives like clean water, water filters, hygiene for kids, community health, and different kinds of education campaigns. I am going to be interviewing, it's not over yet, I'm going <laughs> to be interviewing one of my favorite people, Mindy Grossman, who is the CEO of WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. I have interviewed her before. She is amazing. She is a, a workplace customer of ours, workplaces like Facebook for Work, and she uses it really to manage this huge, sprawling global company. And she is just an incredible person. And so it's just so inspiring to see women out there doing all different kinds of things and 
living unapologetically, Mm -hmm. making a difference, connecting with each other, supporting each other. And um, I just, I love hearing the stories and um, getting to meet people. And that's why I like your, that's why I like your podcast because (laughs) you're doing that all the time. And I'll continue to wash dishes with my earbuds in and listen to this awesome podcast because that's exactly what you're doing on a regular basis. And nothing gets me more motivated. (laughs) Well, truly, Marnie Levine, we are so grateful to get to lift up a woman who is lifting up women every day. It has been our sincere pleasure interviewing and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you for having me. Marty is so impressive, and I thought she made so many wonderful points. You know, it's funny because when I posted that she was going to be our guest today, one of my guy friends immediately read her bio and was like, she's a boss. Like, there's no denying this woman's power. That no is denying. absolutely the case. She is so incredible, and we're so lucky to have worked with her and to still be on the receiving end of her guidance and her brilliance. Our POTUS this week goes to City Council member Kim Janey, making history as the first black and female mayor of Boston. She was sworn in this week, and on her first day as mayor, she visited the Charleston School where she was bussed. And we know as a former educator that that's going to be one of her top priorities. So we're looking forward to see all that she has in store for the city of Boston as a real game changer there. And as we talk about game changers, our shout out of the week goes to Sedona Prince and all of the women of the NCAA women's basketball teams. They are currently participating in the women's tournament, and they highlighted the discrepancies in both medical treatment, including coronavirus testing, and training facilities that the women have access to as it compares to the men. We are so proud of you for using your voices and your platforms as a way to increase awareness and ensure equality for all. Hopefully, we will not be doing a tournament next year in a bubble and next year we will ensure that all of the facilities are equal across the board. To continue our conversation about technology and its role in society, we are thrilled to have Dr. Joan Donovan join us next week. She is at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University. She is a leader in the field on examining the internet technology, online extremism, and disinformation campaigns. So that should be a fascinating conversation, and we look forward to that next week. As always, Pod as a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. See you all next week.